Thank you for tuning in to the sermon podcast from Redeeming Hope. We exist as a family of faith that follows Jesus and helps others find him by living all of life as missionaries of hope. If you want more information about our church or would like to support our ministry, go to our website at redeeminghope.org. Please enjoy the sermon podcast. Okay, with that, continue our series um, on the Gospel of Mark, Christ the King, seeing Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. The title of today's message is Lord of the Sabbath, Lord of the Sabbath. St. Augustine said, our hearts are restless, O Lord, until they rest in thee. And, you know, I think you might be able to summarize the gospel with that one singular word, rest. You know, legalism, moralism, uh, bad religion, dead religion, uh, works religion. It's all about work, work, work. But Jesus invites us to come and rest. And what we see here as we continue in this series is Jesus and how he and his disciples interacted with the Sabbath and then how Jesus answered his critics who saw how he and his disciples were interacting with the Sabbath because they didn't really understand the Sabbath. And we're going to see that in a minute. So we're in Mark chapter 2 verse 23 through Mark chapter 3, verse 6. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of presence? which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might come and accuse him. And he said to the man with a withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that today Jesus is enough. We thank you, Lord, that you bring us to a place of rest. Help us, Lord, to receive rest as we uh, unpack this text of Scripture. I pray that our hearts would land in a good spot, in a restful place. Our hearts would land in the Sabbath that we have in Christ. So teach us, lead us, guide us, show us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, God's laws, uh, God's Scriptures are full of commands. Commands about how to approach God. Commands about uh, how to treat your neighbor, how to treat your wife, how to how to treat your children, children, and how how to show respect and honor to your parents. There's uh, commands about how to treat animals. There's commands in the Old Testament about how to use animals for the ceremonial sacrificial system. I mean, there's 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 just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of commands in Scripture. And you know, you might say that the Ten Commandments are the top ten. And when we're talking about the Sabbath, what we see is that the Sabbath actually made God's top 10 list. The fourth commandment of the 10 commandments from Exodus 20 and verse 8. 
Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you, your son, or your daughter, your male servant, or your female servant, or your livestock, or the, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. <clears throat> you know, it might be easy to look at this command of Sabbath that's in the Ten Commandments and think, well, yeah, God commanded it, but it's not really that serious. I mean, it's, it's more like on the level of, you know, maybe in modern terms, buckle your seatbelt, <clears throat> you're probably not going to be in an accident, right? Most people think so. But I, but I better buckle it anyway. I don't want to be stopped by an officer and get a ticket. Um, or, you know, don't eat before you swim or before you have heavy physical activity or don't chew gum. You know, it's sort of on the level of, of that. But when we look at the whole tone surrounding the Sabbath command, it, it's incredibly sobering and it's incredibly heavy. As a matter of fact, in Exodus chapter 31, we see that God considered breaking the Sabbath a capital offense. In other words, it was punishable by death. Exodus 31, 14. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Wow. I mean, rest or die. So why does it matter so much? And what should we do with it? Let's look to Jesus for our answer. Back to to our text today, Mark chapter 2, verse 23. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Now, what the disciples were doing shouldn't be considered all-out working, right? It's not like they were harvesting the field. It was sort of the the equivalent in that day of opening the fridge and pulling out a snack. And what we see is that the Pharisees added rules to the Sabbath because they were so, in their minds, they were, they were so afraid of breaking the Sabbath law and they wanted to protect it so deeply that they added rules to it so that you wouldn't come anywhere near working on the Sabbath. But the problem was by adding rules, they actually made the Sabbath about work because you, then you would stress and they would stress, as you could see here in this text, it's full of stress. They're, they're lurking and watching to make sure people are following the rules they added to the Sabbath. And really the Sabbath became about stress. It became a stressful thing if you were on the Pharisees. It became about work. And that's what religion does, isn't it? Religion, and I'm talking about false religion, adds rules to rules. You know, it's like the old Ed Sullivan show, and they had that guy on there who was the, the famous plate spinner. You ever see that guy? He starts off and he starts spinning one plate. Then he takes his little stack of plates and he goes and puts it, uh, he's got another one over here and he starts spinning it. And he's got another one over here and he starts spinning that. And the idea is he tries to get all the plates spinning on the stage, but of course, the very first plate that he, he spun to start this whole uh, performance uh, by the time he gets to the later plates, that one is, starts to slow down. So he has to go and sort of re-spin that one. And then the other one starts to slow down. He has to re-spin that one. And that's what Pharisaical religion is like. You're always trying to spin the plates. You're stressed because you're always moments away from one of those plates crashing to the ground. You know, during our series, Gospel Center Church, we talked about avoiding what we called extra biblical excess. And that's adding things to the center of the gospel that the gospel doesn't add to the gospel that the scriptures don't add 
to the center of the gospel. It's calling things sinful that are not sinful. It's redefining righteousness. It might not even be a bad thing. It might be taking a preference you have uh, for, you know, what style of music you listen to or what kind of clothes you wear, um, your entertainment choices, your food choices. It might be a preference you have and saying, but this is sacred and holy. Therefore, if someone else doesn't have my preference, then they are sinning. That is legalism. That is adding. That is extra biblical excess. You're adding things to the center of the gospel that are not in the center of the gospel. And it's really redefining righteousness. It's defining sin and righteousness differently than God does. And the problem with us adding our rules, making standards more restrictive or strict, is that when we add our own preferences to God's law, what we're really saying is we're as wise as God is and we're usurping his authority. It's kind of like this. If you took a paintbrush and went to a museum to improve on the artwork at the, at the museum, ah, the Mona Lisa needs a bigger smile. She looks kind of sad. Let me just uh, improve on that smile a little bit. Come on, Da Vinci, what were you thinking? Which kind of insults the artist and destroys the integrity of the painting. Well, these leaders had added their own art. They'd fixed God's art by adding to the commands of God to improve upon them, which thought honored the commands, but in reality, it insulted the artist. It insulted the lawgiver who knew what he was doing. But it's also convenient that they had all these extra rules because they were looking for a way to accuse Jesus. And hey, how, how easy would it be to just keep an eye on him and once he breaks one of our rules, we can accuse him. Because of the leper's disobedience, Jesus is now a celebrity and he's got a lot of people following, a lot of eyes on him. And like in modern times, people love to see celebrities fall. That's why we have websites like TMZ or magazines like the National Enquirer. Is that still around? That was the thing when I was younger. <clears throat> sort of a gossip magazine about celebrities and their dirt, you know. Everybody wants to see them, you know, see them fall. So they see Jesus' disciples breaking one of their rules. They're plucking grain heads on the Sabbath day when they're hungry. And in their rules, that was kind of like harvesting. Well, if you're going to do that, you're just on a slippery slope to firing up the combine and putting in a full, day, full day's work on the Sabbath. So they're thinking, ah, we've got him. We've got Jesus. We caught him. And this is some of the fodder for the smear campaign they're about to launch to use against Jesus. Let's understand the Pharisee culture that existed at this time. There were actually different kinds of Pharisees, and most of them, not all of them, but most of them were legalists. In other words, they, they were keepers of God's law as a means of righteousness, as a means of acceptance before God. And remember, there's two wrong ways to relate to God's law. Number one, you run from it. I can never keep God's law, I'm going to rebel against it. But the second way to wrongly use God's law is to see it as a way to fix yourself. And that is how the Pharisees saw it. The law was a way for them to fix themselves. And they would constantly put on an outward show to try to gain the approval of others, the approval of their peers, the approval of uh, those they were claiming to teach and lead, that people would look at them and think, wow, they are holy. There was actually a Pharisee that was uh, called the depressed Pharisee. 
he would walk around with his, with his face looking to the ground, you know, a picture of humility. So he, he was so humble that he wouldn't even look up at heaven. So he looked down, he'd walk around with his back bent over and his face down, walking around, looking downward all the time. And people would see that person, they'd go, oh, he's a depressed Pharisee. Wow, he's so humble and I don't know if I could do that. So humble and holy, he barely lifteth up his head so as to look at the heavens. He is holy. Okay, it's just a show. Then there was a Pharisee that was nicknamed the Pharisee letting blood. This is real. This Pharisee would walk around uh, with his eyes closed and he would fake collisions or maybe even have real collisions, I don't know, with trees and walls. And he would, and because of these collisions, the blood would run down his face. And the reason he was closing his eyes is because he, he did not want, want to look upon a woman to lust after her. So uh, probably a lot of guys in America probably could use a little bit of this. So, but he's closing his eyes. He's walking around faking collisions with walls, blood flowing down his face. And people would look at him and go, look, look how holy, wow. He's a Pharisee letting blood. He's so holy that he closeth his eyes so as not to look upon women. That's, that's the Pharisees, an outward show, looking for the approval of men, trying to use God's law, not even God's law, the stuff they were even adding to the law. God didn't tell them to do that stuff. They added to try to gain righteousness. And then they would lurk, because that's what Pharisees do. They're hiding in the shadows. That's what legalists do. They hide in the shadows. Like referees in the crowd, they look for a penalty and an opportunity to throw that, you know, you love the world flag. You're a sinner. You broke God's law flag. That's what Pharisees do. But the followers of Jesus are carefree while the religious are obsessive, always there to criticize anyone who's trying to have a good time. For every bit of authentic liberty and joy, there are always lurkers frowning upon it, concerned. Why are they doing this? Jesus, you must not believe the Bible and what it says. So Jesus who is always completely wise, replies with the Bible in verse 25. He said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. So Jesus uses sarcasm. He basically says, hey guys, don't you read the Bible? I mean, these guys had memorized the the Penta, the Pentateuch and the, the Torah and the Pentateuch in the first five books of the Bible and in God's law, they'd memorize those things. And Jesus has the audacity to say, hey, guys, don't you read the Bible? Listen, there's a pattern in Jesus' life. He's incredibly gracious with broken sinners who go to him for forgiveness. Jesus is sometimes the lone voice standing as an advocate and defender of sinners. For example, saying not to stone the woman caught in adultery. Jesus goes out of his way to meet a promiscuous woman at the well in John 4. And when he talks to them, you hear nothing but mercy in those conversations. But Jesus reserves his harshest, sarcastic, most biting criticism for the Pharisees, for the religious crowd. And we as churches often do the opposite. We go hard after sexual sinners, but give religious sinners a free pass. But Jesus wasn't calling wild sinners to become religious. 
He was calling wild sinners and the religious to all turn from their false gods and worship Jesus. And that should be our call too, to turn from sin and trust in Jesus, be a worshiper of Jesus, a follower of Jesus. Turn from religious substitutes for Jesus and trust in him. So Jesus says, haven't you read the Bible? And then he quotes a section when David and his men were hungry. They approached the priest asking for food. And because the priest had no bread, uh, except the bread of the presence, which was part of the ceremonial worship of the priests, which was not to be eaten by David or his men, only by the priests, they ate that. But the ceremonial law given by God said, don't eat that bread. But in this case, because there's no other food, they set aside the ceremonial law and allowed David and his men to eat the bread. They were allowed to set aside the details of the ceremonial law when they had to in order to meet a deeper need. And David was never condemned for eating the bread. God never said it was sin. It was fine that he did that. And why was that okay? Here's why. Because the bread of God's presence from the Old Testament ceremonial law was a picture of Christ. Jesus in the New Testament says that he is the bread of life. The ceremonial laws were temporary and pointed to a greater reality, and that is Christ. The rule wasn't made for the sake of the bread, but to point the way to a greater reality, and that is Jesus Christ, the bread of life. And when you start using bread to starve people, that bread no longer looks like Jesus. So they were able to eat the bread because partaking of the bread in that situation provided a greater picture of Christ than if the bread was used against them to starve them. So just like there were rules about special bread in place to symbolize Jesus, the Sabbath law was also in place to symbolize Jesus Christ. And when you make it look like a burden and a bunch of rules to follow, again, it no longer looks like Jesus. So Jesus doesn't follow their rules. He won't follow their rules. And when they ask him about it, he says two things. Verse 27, Mark 2. He says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So Jesus didn't remove the command to rest one day a week. He restored it to its original purpose, to restore people and point the way to Jesus and to physical and spiritual rest. So Jesus gives two responses. Number one, he says the Sabbath was made for man. When he says says the Sabbath was made for man, he is saying that this is supposed to be a day that benefits people. That not, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, it's not about man straining and stressing out about keeping all the Pharisees extra little petty rules they made up, but it was supposed to be a day that blessed people. It's supposed to be a day that rebuilds you and encourages you spiritually and physically. It's like, you know, the farmer. I mean, in, in the Sabbath laws, they often cited the farmer. It's, it's a law that says to the farmer, you can rest. You don't have to be enslaved by your work in a way where you're, you're in bondage to it. You can rest, and while you rest, trust God to multiply your work. Trust God to multiply and add to your work by his sovereign grace. But the Pharisees took that law and added laws and made it burdensome. They actually had laws that they added like you couldn't drag a stick on the ground. A kid couldn't drag a stick on the ground or a man couldn't drag a stick on the ground during the Sabbath because that was like tilling a field. A little girl couldn't, couldn't put a ribbon in her hair because that's a, a picture of weighing someone down with a burden. Just absurd. 
let's contrast what it's like to be under law versus what it's like to be under grace. And we see it here in this, in this uh, text of Scripture and how Jesus related to the Sabbath and how the Pharisees did. Under law, you're discouraged, stressed out. Under grace, you're encouraged, you're built up, there's peace. Under law, you seek the praises and the approval of men. Under grace, you love to give praise to God and seek his approval, not man's approval. Under law, you're constantly competing with others. It's like the Pharisees, it was almost like they were just, they were competing with one another to see who could like be more holy and keep more laws. Under grace, you serve others. Under law, motivated by fear. Under grace, motivated by love. Under law, self-loathing. Under grace, you see the worth that Christ sees, even in yourself. Under law, condemnation. Under grace, freedom. Under law, many laws and rules. Under grace, simplicity. One major rule, love. Under law, complexity. Under Christ, simplicity. Under law, insecurity. Under grace, confidence. So the Pharisees created this mountain of rules and they were ruining the picture of Jesus in the Sabbath. So Jesus says the Sabbath was made for man. It's made to bless people. And you've taken that blessing away. The second thing he says is the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, which means that this day is all about Jesus. Jesus is our rest. The way we get connected to God is not by doing good works, but by resting in Jesus. And it it is interesting that the Jewish people practice the Sabbath as the seventh day, the last day of the week. But when the early church instituted the Sabbath, you know, the early Christian church instituted the Sabbath in their uh, culture and life, they practiced it on the first day of the week, which is a great picture of the gospel. We begin with rest and you work from rest. You don't work to rest. You don't like earn your rest by, if I just work hard enough, then I deserve rest and, and I've sort of earned something. No, you, you start complete, you start resting and then you work from that position. It's almost like when God the Father said over Jesus, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. When Jesus was being baptized, that was before Jesus ever did any work, any ministry in his life. He received the Father's love and affirmation first. In other words, you're complete now, you're loved now, you can rest now, and then you work from rest, not work to rest. Hebrews chapter four, verses nine and 10, talks about Sabbath rest when it says, so then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. You see what he's doing here? He's, he's saying that uh, Jesus is a picture of the Sabbath similar to the creation account in Genesis. How, how does that tie in? Well, in the Genesis account, God created the heavens and the earth for six days. And on day one, God created this. On day two, God created that. And then on day seven, God rested from his works. Well, you might say that the Old Testament, the Old Covenant of the ceremonial law and works and and all that was required to approach God was a picture of the first six days of creation. Man worked for his uh, place with God. Man worked for his salvation in a sense. Man was required to bear heavy burdens in keeping the law of Moses. But then Jesus comes in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, and in Christ, we rest from our labors. Jesus 
did away with the ceremonial law when he said to the Pharisees, look, your house is left to you desolate. And when he died, the temple veil was torn in two and the foundation of the temple was, was shaken and, and, and cracked. That the idea of sacrificial temple worship is done away with now in Christ. We rest in him. And it makes sense why God takes our physical rest so seriously because it paints a picture of our spiritual rest in Jesus. When Jesus came to this world, in Matthew 11, he said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. There it is. The gospel is rest. He says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That yoke is what was used you know, on, on cattle to plow fields. And, and he's saying, The yoke that I'm putting on you, what I'm requiring of you, the life I'm calling you to live, I'm putting... I'm putting an easy weight on you and I'm putting a light, a heavy weight on myself. And he says, come to me, rest, and then you can work from rest. It's an, it's an easier yoke than the yoke of the law. Grace is a lighter yoke than the yoke of the law. And so Jesus gives us rest from a few things. He gives us rest from religion, from dead religion. Religion demands work, work, work. And the gospel says, rest, rest, rest. You know, I watch this, um, this show, I Shouldn't Be Alive, every once in a while with, with my, my family. And there was this episode that we watched of uh, these guys who were lost at sea, and they decided, they saw an oil rig in the distance, and they decided to swim for the oil rig. And uh, they started swimming out there, and they swam for an hour, and only then to realize that they were farther away from the oil rig because the currents are so powerful than they were when we started. It was hopeless. And that's what religion is like. You can be working harder than you ever have in your life and yet be farther away than you ever were from God. I experienced that. It's a terrible place. Jesus gives us rest from that. Number two, Jesus gives us rest from ultimate worries. No matter what happens in our lives and in this world, God is in control and in the end we'll still have Jesus and eternal life. Because of that, I don't have to be a self-savior as if I can fix every problem in my life and as if my happiness depends on my world being some sort of personal utopia. So these guys, these Pharisees, had missed that it was all about Jesus. And you see it clearly in the next passage in Mark 3. Jesus entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. So here's a guy whose hand doesn't work right, shriveled up. And again, remember, this is an agricultural society. Which means in an agricultural society, this guy is not able to provide for his family as well as he could have. And, and he, he struggles with the basic necessities of life because one of his hands doesn't work. Nobody wants to hire somebody with one hand to help on a farm. So this guy's got it rough. And probably in the Pharisees' minds, they often equated uh, an affliction, an outward affliction, with, as a, as a uh, consequence of someone's sin. Uh, so they're probably thinking, this guy's a loser. His hand's probably shriveled up because of sin in his life. So they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with a withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around them with anger, grieved at the hardness of their hearts, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. I want you to notice the contrast here. Here's Jesus healing on the Sabbath, and the Pharisees are thinking, man, what Jesus just did is really bad. Are you serious? They had a rule 
that you could only do essential healing on the Sabbath. You could put a tourniquet on and stop bleeding, but this guy wasn't essential. He'd probably been shriveled for a long time and he'd be fine to wait until tomorrow. But apparently what couldn't wait till tomorrow was the meeting they had right afterwards where they plotted Jesus' death, which apparently that's okay to do on the Sabbath. Can you see how ridiculous this is? Jesus is healing a man on the Sabbath and they're saying that's bad. They're plotting the murder of the son of God on the Sabbath and saying this is good. The contrast couldn't be more clear. The Pharisees said the Sabbath day was for being hungry, shriveled, and even plotting death. Jesus said it was for healing, being full, and rejuvenation. You can have your shrivel, hungry, shriveled hand, hungry, dead Sabbath, Jesus said, but this is what the Sabbath is supposed to be. These people needed to be shocked into seeing reality. Number one, that the Sabbath was not about working to keep rules, but about resting in Jesus. And number two, to really keep the Sabbath looked more like peace and joy and wholeness and love, what the Hebrews called shalom and not at all like oppression. Listen to this quote from the third century. St. Cyprian wrote to a friend named Donatus. He said, this seems to be a cheerful world, Donatus, when I view it from this fair garden under the shadow of these vines. But if I climbed some great mountain and looked out over the wide lands, you know very well what I would see. Brigands on the high road, pirates on the seas, in the amphitheaters, men murdered to please the applauding crowds, all under roofs, under all roofs, misery and selfishness. It really is a bad world, Donatus, an incredibly bad world. Yet in the midst of it, I have found a quiet and holy people. They have discovered a joy which is a thousand times better than any pleasure of this sinful life. They are despised and persecuted, but they care not. They have overcome the world. These people, Donatus, are the Christians. And I am one of them. That's beautiful. And we see now what's at stake here when we don't practice the Sabbath as rest in Christ. What's at stake is the authenticity of our faith in Christ. When we can't Sabbath, it might be an indicator that we've adopted all the same values and ambitions and measures of success the world around us has. So we still need discipline in this area of our lives of Sabbath. And if you look at our culture, it doesn't lend itself at all to Christ's Sabbath. Americans are slaves to their work. We find our identity in our work. We work long hours, side hustles and side businesses. We're engaged constantly in our hobbies. And on top of all that, our work comes with us. Our, our cell phone is like attached to our hip. And, and you see people all the time interrupted in times when they should be resting by their work. And the symptoms of losing Sabbath in a culture, you get, number one, stressed out workaholics who are very bad at resting at all. Number two, people lose their value and life loses its beauty. People become inconveniences or commodities, a means to an end. Number three, which is one of the worst things, we, we see idolatry. We get our identity from our work. I mean, you often see, this, this is a thing where you see uh, CEOs of major companies often when they retire die not long after they retire because their work was in their identity. And when we rest, we're saying, I trust you, Jesus. I trust that this is not about me. It's not ultimately up to me. My success isn't uh, dependent totally on me. I trust in you. And if we can't rest, we're exposing what we really believe our provision and significance comes from, not Christ's work, but ours. 
If we can't unplug and take time off, it exposes that we're, we're believing something wrong about our work or our own importance. We believe we're a pretty big deal, that the world depends on me. And many of our jobs have the potential for us to work endlessly. Sales, creative work, our minds don't turn off, project-oriented work, coaching, being self-employed, you know, all the paperwork and getting new gigs and getting new opportunities. Being a student, the work is endless. And this is an area of temptation for me. This is an area where I have historically struggled. But one of the things I've had to realize and one of the things I've learned is that the idea of being complete or perfect or having a perfect day or getting all the tasks done is a delusion. We're in a fallen world and we'll never ever feel like we had a complete day, a complete year. We fulfilled all our New Year's resolutions. The business plan never went according to plan. We never in sports had a perfect performance or a perfect execution. And if you do, it's like the plate spinner. You gotta do it all over again tomorrow. We need to repent. Look at our lives through the lens of Jesus making us complete and say, it's done, it's enough, it's satisfying. Jesus is enough and I'm gonna take a nap. We won't get any other kind of rest until we have that kind of heart rest. Even if we physically rest, it's possible to have Sabbath days without a Sabbath heart. And what is a Sabbath heart? That's a heart that truly believes that who you are defined by is Jesus, that your provider is Jesus, your sufficiency is Jesus, and the one who holds all things together is Jesus. So how do we Sabbath well? Some thoughts. We start with worship. We just turn our attention to God. The book of Hebrews says, strive to rest. It's a paradox, right? Work hard to make sure that you're not working hard. It work, it, not that we shouldn't work hard, but that work hard to make sure that we are not defining ourselves by our work, but we're resting in Christ and trusting in him to win the day, not our own wisdom or merit or skills, but ultimately it's from him and for him. Number two, sleep, get rested. Sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do. Um, you know, I remember uh, there's times when I've counseled people and they're like, oh, pastor, it's just things are so hard. And you know, my, my marriage is just so stressed out. I'm like, how have you been sleeping lately? Not good. We'll get some sleep. They get a couple days sleep and they're like, man, things have gotten so much better. God's moving. Well, you slept. It's a very practical answer. Number three, enjoy creation and beauty. The Celts called creation God's, uh, God's second book. Just in creation, we can, it, it, it preaches the gospel to us. It preaches, uh, it preaches God's glory to us. Get refreshed by looking at lakes and woods and Niagara Falls. You know, when I was in New York, down here, it's, it's uh, uh, you know, you got the Smoky Mountains and all these parks. You know, we went to a number of parks down in um, uh, down on the other side of Nashville last summer. It's beautiful. Enjoy creation and beauty. Enjoy great books or, or, or movies, you know, where, where you, can, you can look at something great and, and, and beautiful. It's, it's, a, it's, a way to, it's a way to Sabbath. Eat good food with family and friends. Do work that is not work. An old Jewish rabbi said that those who work with their minds, Sabbath with their hands, and those who work with their hands, Sabbath with their minds. Um, you know, so there, so, so if, if you're constantly engaging your mind in your work, then find something to do with your hands. And, uh, and so you can you kind of turn your mind off. You know, I know I enjoyed uh, doing yard work, uh, especially when I was a homeowner in New York. I get my chainsaw and go and, you know, cut down trees in the back. And that was, uh, that was a refreshing thing to me. But we unplug. Another way to Sabbath is to rest. You know, if you think about the idea of recreation, what is that? Re 
creation. Play with your kids. Go for a walk for fun, not because you're keeping track of how many calories you're burning or how many steps you, know, you, you have to take today. Do fun and holy things. Another way to keep the Sabbath, schedule it weekly. Have that sacred space in your life or it won't happen. Biblical rhythm is work for six days and rest one day. A certain day, I don't believe a certain day is sacred anymore. You have some uh, church movements and denominations and schools of thought that, that think the Sabbath has to be on Saturday, the Sabbath has to be on Sunday. The book of Hebrews says, uh, I believe the book of Hebrews teaches that it's every day. We rest in Christ every day, but also I think we should have a in our schedule, in our rhythm, a day of the week when we rest uh, and when you know we we rest spiritually, and that truly is the Lord's day in your life, where you're you're just showing your own heart that you trust in Him. Colossians two sixteen says, therefore let no one pass. Judgment on you and questions of food or drink with regard to a new moon or festival or Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. In other words, the Sabbath is a picture of Christ. So it's not, a, it's not what certain day you celebrate it on, but it's that it's a principle of your heart and it's a principle in your life. Allow the Sabbath to be a weekly test of your heart. Do I believe the gospel? Do I believe that this thing depends on Jesus, not on me? So schedule... Uh, Weekly rest, I also encourage you to schedule daily rest and annual rest. But most of all, live in Christ. As St. Augustine said, I'll finish with what I began with. Our hearts are restless, O Lord, until they rest in Thee. Let's pray. Father, help us to rest in You. Help us to truly know that Jesus is enough. Help us to know that uh, it's it's a delusion to think that we could pull this thing off ourselves but that we can accomplish more by resting and trusting in you, working six days and resting for one, living in rest. We can accomplish more like that than we can by striving for seven days and trying to live in a, in a universe with, with the absence of God without trusting in you, trusting in ourselves. We flee from self-salvation. We flee to grace. We flee to Christ. And we thank you that Jesus is enough. God bless you. Thank you for listening. We gather every Sunday at the Clarksville area YMCA. For more information, please go to our website at redeeminghope.org.